leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Josiah Zayner calls himself a biohacker. He's got a PhD in molecular biophysics from the University of Chicago and worked as a fellow in NASA's synthetic biology program. But it's Zayner's evangelicism for democratizing the tools of biotechnology, his flair for attention-grabbing self-experimentation, and efforts to share the knowledge and equipment necessary to perform procedures like gene editing that have given him some notoriety. As founder and CEO of the ODIN, Zayner is helping move biotechnology from the labs of universities and biopharmaceutical companies to high schools and garages. We spoke to Zayner about his efforts, how biotechnology is becoming accessible to laypeople, and how he sees this fueling innovation. Josiah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, it's great. Thanks for having me on. We're going to talk about biohacking your company, The Odin, and the CRISPR kits you're selling that allow people to get a hands-on understanding of gene editing. Perhaps we can start with The Odin itself, though. Can you explain what it is and and why you founded it? Yeah, so The Odin is a genetic engineering company, but instead of us trying to you know, create a gene therapy or medical device. What we're trying to do is get people to do genetic engineering in their homes. We're trying to educate people on how they can actually use genetic engineering and take part in this genetic engineering revolution. I should say, among other things, you offer a four-month online class, the Biohacker 101 class. How would you describe what's meant by the term biohacking, and, and who is this class for? What are you, what are you trying to teach? Yeah, so uh, the Biohacking 101 class is meant for anybody who doesn't have experience in genetic engineering, molecular biology, or CRISPR, and wants to learn how. So for the class, we send people supplies and kits so they can do genetic engineering at home, learn along with other people, and learn with experts in the field. So we actually have scientists like George Church from Harvard and Kate Adamala from University of Minnesota, who are, are, are giving lectures and participating in the class so that people get like a, a really good education. Your company is offering a, a fraud genetic engineering kit for $299. This is being offered for someone who would like to learn to genetically modify animals. What comes in a kit? So... 
The kit comes with frogs and all the materials you need to genetically modify them. So what the purpose of this kit is, is when you think about the amount of people that have had access to genetic engineering technology, genetically modifying animals or humans, you're talking in the world, maybe thousands of people. If you're lucky, maybe 10,000 people. So the lack of training and experience that people have had in this area is astounding, especially when you know a lot of people say genetic engineering and gene therapy is going to be one of the most powerful technologies of our time. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to put the resources and knowledge into the hands of people so that they can actually learn how to do genetic engineering hands-on so they have an intuition for the, how the process works, can build off of it, and do other awesome things. Like most of our customers are from schools, so you can imagine that like having schools, having high school students and college students learn about this stuff is uh, invaluable. And why is that a good thing? Why is people learning about how to use genetic engineering and gene therapy a good thing? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, if we want as a society to be able to create drugs that help people, create, you know, crops and other things that can help the world. You need people who understand and know how to use the technology. Uh, if people don't understand and know how to use the technology, if they don't have the proper education and how to use it, people aren't going to be able to innovate. People aren't going to be able to create things that will help people. And uh, that'll be a loss for everyone. When the kid arrives at someone's home, what do they actually do? What do people do with the kit? Yeah, how how uh, do they actually use it? Oh, so the kit comes with instructions on exactly how to go through the whole process. So it's detailed instructions that tell people, you know, how to handle the animals, how to feed them, how to work with them, how to do everything. Um, the process of genetic engineering and gene therapy is actually fairly simple for humans and animals and usually just involves an injection of the gene therapy into the organism to see the effect of the you know, the DNA or the virus or whatever. And in the case of the frog kits, what are, what is the editing they're actually doing? So the frog kits, there's not actually gene editing taking place per se. So it's a type of gene therapy that is not as common and lesser known. We call it FLEEB. And FLEEB stands for uh, Formulated Liquids That Enhance the Engineering of Biology. So what you're actually injecting is DNA with a liquid that helps the DNA get into cells. Once this DNA is inside cells, the cells think it's their own DNA, right? So you put in these different genetic elements in the DNA so the cells think it's its own DNA, and then it just starts to use it. It uses the DNA like it's its own. So it doesn't actually modify the genome long-term. Um, so there's no chance of like it spreading to future generations or anything like that. It's just the adult animal that sees the effects. Um, so it's similar to, say, somebody injecting steroids. When you're injecting steroids, you're going to see the effect of steroids while you're injecting them, and you'll have results long-term. But once you stop injecting the steroids, you're no longer going to have you know, increased effects. And what, what is the DNA that they're actually injecting? What is, it, what is the effect on the frog? 
So the gene therapy that we, the, the first one that we actually wanted people to have access to is this gene called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. And what this is, is it's a growth hormone in organisms. So like in humans, IGF-1 is primarily expressed when you're going through puberty. It's expressed over your whole life, but when you're going through puberty, this hormone is what tells your body to grow bigger, you know, to become more muscular, to have your bones and everything else grow so that you can become an adult. When you do, when you do the injection in an adult, when there's an overabundance of this gene in an adult, they do the same thing. They increase in size, they increase in mass, and uh, this is something that's really easy to measure for anybody. It doesn't require any sophisticated equipment. It can even be seen with the naked eye, and uh, we, we thought that's an amazing way to introduce people to gene therapies. I should note that the protocols and procedures you follow improve on or are recommendations from the NIH Guide for Care and Use of Laboratory Animals. Nevertheless, news of the kids seem to generate some mixed feelings in the research community. I don't think I saw anyone raising any real red flags, but they expressed concerns about potential ethical considerations and safety considerations. What's the case for what you're doing? Yeah, no, we, we've thought a lot about this, right? And basically what you're doing is you're weighing the, the potential harm that people could cause to the animals for the potential benefit of people having access and learning about this technology, right? So you have to understand that like most high school and college education around biology and biological sciences, people are doing experiments from the 1980s. You know, they're still doing the same experiments I did and you did, right? And that's crazy. Like we have a, a, a generation of people who are growing up without ever having used or experienced modern biological technologies. And to me, that's the hugest travesty. Like, if we actually want genetic engineering and gene therapy to help a lot of people, it's something that we have to train a generation of people to know how to use it, to understand it, to actually have done it. Uh, and so I think that the potential harm that could be done to these animals, and again, like you said, what we do is we teach people how to anesthetize the animals, we teach people how to handle them, you know, feed, everything. And these are way beyond what's done in normal labs. In normal labs, they don't anesthetize animals. You know, they do toe clippings, they do tail clippings, where they literally just chop off toes and, and tails of animals to use for DNA analysis without any anesthesia. So we're trying to go above and beyond what's normally done in science and train people in the right way so that, you know, we can actually see a difference in society. I should also note that you have demonstrated a willingness to experiment on yourself. In 2017, you <laughs> injected yourself with DNA to modify your muscles. I, I believe this was during a presentation at the SynBio Beta conference and, and posted on YouTube. What exactly did you do, and, and what were the effects, if any? Yeah, no, so like, uh, this, this, the way society is changing with access to bi biotechnology and gene therapy is crazy. So if you look at uh, Lux Turna, the gene therapy that was approved for, uh, you know, hereditary blindness in individuals, the gene therapy costs 
somewhere around $800,000 for the treatment on people. That's crazy. So when you think about like, could you imagine if somebody came to you and told you like, look, hey, we can fix your blindness, but uh, you're going to have to pay $800,000. Like, and if your insurance doesn't cover it, that's crazy. Like that's, oh my gosh. Like we literally can help these people, but we're putting in this large monetary uh, inhibitory thing. The thing is, if you actually wanted to make these gene therapies from scratch, and you went to the companies that make these, you know, Eldevron is a huge, uh, a huge supplier of gene therapies. So are a bunch of other companies. You can contact them and have them make these for, it'll cost you thousands of dollars, you know, so like less than $10,000, maybe even less than $5,000. That's crazy, right? So they cost $5,000, $10,000, but, uh, they're charging $800,000. And, uh, like, how do we view that and how do we overcome that as a society? And for me, I think that is we need some sort of activism. We need to show people how this works, what it costs, and we need to show people, like, you know, give them the knowledge to do that. And that's what I like to do. So and gene therapy just, has been just going to, on. Just to clarify, the, the, the cost of development is beyond the cost of the goods. So oh, totally. These are companies that invested hundreds of millions of dollars into developing the therapy and assuring it's, it's safe and effective, just for context there. No, but, I mean, we could get into then, like, well, why does it cost that much, right? Absolutely. It's, definitely, it's not what... It, not it, not know, the purpose things, of the conversation, but... Yeah, yeah. Things don't need to cost that much. Um, and, like... You know, what's going to happen? Are, are people going to start pirating these gene therapy technologies? That, that might happen if people can't afford them. You know, there's a, a drug out right now, uh, or it was approved, Glybera. I don't know if you've heard of Glybera. Yep. It was approved for lipoprotein lipase deficiency, um, went through approval process in the EU, and uh, was approved. They tried to charge a million dollars for it. Nobody could pay for it, so they let the regulatory approval lapse. So they have a gene therapy that can treat, you know, pretty much cure this disease, lipoprotein lipase deficiency, but nobody has access to it anymore because a company couldn't charge a million dollars for it. And to me, that's a, that's a travesty, that there's literally treatments and cures that people don't have access to just purely for profit motive. Well, in the case of your own self-injection, what did you inject yourself with and on what were the effects? Yeah, no, so I've done a number of experiments on myself. Uh, I, I, I don't really do experiments anymore using gene therapies, but I experimented for, you know, a year and a half, two years doing different experiments. The first experiments I did, I wanted to have an intuition for human gene therapy and how it works and what it takes and what's going on with it, uh, because there's very few people in the world who've actually ministered human gene therapies. So I worked with, uh, GFP, a green fluorescent protein, it's a very common gene to use when you're trying to, you know, prototype and do proof of concept experiments. Um, so I did a bunch of experiments trying to modify my skin with GFP and was successful with that. I was, I had to take skin biopsies, which let me tell you hurt really bad <laughs> and, uh, did uh, looked at the, the mRNA being expressed in the cell and the presence of 
the GFP DNA, which, you know, is not normally in human beings and was able to detect that in my, in my body and skin cells. So I learned like how to apply and administer these gene therapies. Um, what are you using and, as a vector? Uh, so I use both AAV, AAV to administer and plasmid based and naked DNA. Did you, uh, one of the issues with AAV is that you can develop an immune response. Have you in injected yourself with AAV multiple times? Um, so this was just, uh, topically, topical application to the skin. I didn't inject myself, but I'm sure there could also be, you know, an immune response to that. Uh, the immune response generally that I know of or have heard of is antibody production and not like, uh, somebody hurting themselves sure. or dying. Yeah. Um, so usually with AAV, what happens is your body produces antibodies to it and, uh, then it prevents you from using the same AAV for future experiments. It's why clinical trials, you know, test everybody. You can't get into a, a gene therapy clinical trial if you have AAV antibodies, which is another super sad thing. Um, but yeah, so uh, that was, you know, successful. Um, and so I wanted to do something that would draw people's attention to like how how easy it was gene therapy to, you know, how, how inexpensive it was, um, how it wasn't this crazy thing. Obviously, with like Lux Turno, when you're injecting the eyes, I don't recommend anybody try to <laughs> DIY something like that. <laughs> you know? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, that's it's, it's just way too much. Um, but uh, with general gene therapies, they're muscular injections, right? Uh, just like anything else, like people... Um, have plenty of injections like that in their lifetime, probably vaccines and other things. Um, and, uh, they're inexpensive. I wanted to bring awareness to that. So I injected myself with a CRISPR knockout vector. So this was just pure naked DNA. And then what, what the CRISPR gRNA targeted was the first exon of the myostatin gene. Now, myostatin is a gene that what it does is it inhibits muscular growth. So when this gene is knocked out, it causes a proliferation of muscular growth. The reason I did this is because it's super well studied. They've done experiments similar or like this in many different animals and organisms a lot. Um, they've even done similar non-CRISPR-based experiments in humans using folostatin, which is a natural inhibitor of, of myostatin. Um, and so I thought if it worked, it would be something that would be easy to visualize. Uh, you know, I did it live. I did it very provocatively because it, this is something that I'm trying to draw attention to. Um, that like, look, people, I get so many emails every day. So many emails of people who are just like, how do I get access to gene therapies? How do I get access to this gene therapy? I can't get in this clinical trial. Is there any way you can help me with this? Even a ton of people with muscular dystrophy who can't get access to the current drugs out there that are super promising, like microdystrophin and uh, other things. These people just want access. They're suffering. They're dying right now. And uh, I wanted to bring attention to that. Was, um, was there a noticeable change to your muscle mass? No. So... Yeah, so what I was looking for was change in my muscle mass, and I was always also looking for change in the DNA. 
there's this technique where you can extract the DNA and amplify the region and sequence it and hopefully see changes in uh, the the region that that you attended to modify. Um, it's very difficult because there are a lot of cells and getting, you know, the cells that could have been modified, you know, who knows if they're, what what's going on. I didn't see any significant change in my muscle. And when I tried to do the DNA analysis, they were pretty inconclusive. Um, the method I used was called uh, TIDE, I think. And what, what the preliminary results were looking like was like uh, from non-modified tissue, I was seeing changes and modified tissue. So I was just like, eh, this isn't really a conclusive way to measure it. Um, and so I kind of figured out like back to the drawing board, like what, what can I do to make this experiment more robust and, and things like that. Uh, and it, it led me to figuring out how to test these things better. And that led me to creating these frog kits or experimenting with animals because you can't test a lot of things on yourself, right? Like I can't inject myself with CRISPR every other week and try to figure out like, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? It's, it's, it's it's not a good way to live your life or do science. Well, you you also suffer from irritable bowel syndrome and, and engaged in an experiment to rebuild your microbiome by transplanting a friend's microbiome. What exactly did you do? <laughs> oh yeah, so no, that was that was really interesting. Uh, that was a couple years ago, and what happened was uh, I suffered from you know, gastrointestinal issues for my whole life, uh, especially while working at NASA. I don't know if there's something in the air there, the cafeteria, but it really got me. <laughs> um, but it was hard because, like, you, you couldn't even, I couldn't even go into work sometimes, right? Because I'd have to go to the bathroom so many times in a day. It's just, it's, it's very harmful to living a normal life and just trying to, just trying to go to work. And a lot of people suffer from these issues. And uh, traditionally, um, doing fecal transplants has been something that people participate in in a DIY way. Um, in the U.S., it's currently outlawed. Uh, it's illegal for a doctor to prescribe you uh a fecal transplant for anything other than antibiotic-resistant Clostridium difficile infections. That's the only thing fecal transplants can be used for. Now, in other countries, in the UK and other places in the world, uh, they do actually have clinics that provide fecal transplants for people, um, but in the U.S., not really so. And uh, research on how these transplants treat IBS, IBD, and other gastrointestinal illnesses. At the time, there wasn't a lot of stuff out there. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for me. What I can do is I can try to take somebody who's healthy, who has healthy guts, see if I could transplant their microbiome to my body and see how it actually, like, what happens. Does it work? How does it make me feel? And all this stuff. So I, I, I did a procedure. Um, where I performed a transplant and took like 70 different samples, uh, you know, before and after the experiment and different samples all over my body and my environment to look at how things change. And I also documented a lot of different health and wellness things. Um, 
my weight, my sexual libido, how I felt, how I, you know, took like mental health tests to see like how I was feeling. And, uh, at the end of the experiment, after I did this transplant, uh, the DNA sequencing showed that it was actually successful. I had recolonized my gastrointestinal tract with the bacteria from the healthy donor and my gastrointestinal tract health, like the way I felt did improve drastically. Um, at, at that time I had blood in my stool constantly. You're talking like weekly or daily. And since then it's been non-existent. Uh, it's been a sustained benefit for you. It's been a sustained benefit. I don't recommend this for people because I think you, you have to, number one, a treatment like this is very individualistic. And also I think people have to approach health more holistically. You can't think of anything as like a cure for a disease or illness. You have to think of like, how can I maintain a, a healthy gut despite the illnesses that I have? So I've also changed my diet and tried to be more healthy along those areas. So it's been, it's been a holistic thing, but I've seen lasting benefits. And were you able to identify what the problematic bacteria in your own system was? No, those things are more complicated, and especially when you're trying to do an analysis like that, you probably need a lot larger cohort of individuals to see, you know, what's common and what changes afterward, you know? I'm, I'm not going to ask you about radioactive spiders, but... <laughs> Let, let Are you me, sure? That's, 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 that's our, my next experiment. 2020. <laughs> I, I think for much of the history of biotechnology, performing science has been thought of as something that requires lots of capital, advanced tools, and technical sophistication. Anyone who's made homebrew beer, I'd argue, has engaged in a form of garage biotechnology. But has something fundamentally changed in the cost and accessibility of the tools of biotechnology that's making it accessible to a broad audience? You're exactly right, 100%. So what we are starting to see is that, like, the biotech supply companies that sell to uh, people doing traditional biotech and pharma, they're able to mark up their prices ridiculously because people are willing to pay it. People are willing to pay a price in science for dependability, um, like extreme dependability and like warranties and all these things. The thing is, I can order most of the same supplies from the same distributors overseas and I could mark it up maybe instead of 10 or 20 fold, two fold, still make a profit and provide people with the resources that they need to like do biotech experimentation. And the thing is, the only difference between me, somebody who has a PhD, and somebody else, a brewer, somebody else doing experiments in their garage is, I went to school. I'm not, like, particularly smart. Most people, in fact, online would probably say I'm pretty stupid. So, like, there you go, right? Like, if some stupid guy like me can learn how to do this stuff, I think anybody can. Well, what do you think the potential is for unlocking innovation with these technologies? And is there a potential for someone to use them to make meaningful inroads into improving human health or addressing a therapeutic need that may not seem commercially viable? No, that is, you know, you speak so much truth. And uh, I think that 
I think the thing is, is that the science and pharma and biotech are traditionally looking at things that are either valuable for publication, valuable for grants, valuable uh, for the market, you know, finding a, a drug target that's valuable or a disease that's valuable. But this leaves a ton of things open. For instance, I had this guy email me the other day, and uh, he had this ultra-rare disease that's something like 30 people in the world have, right? Now, no biotech company is ever going to go after a disease like that. It's just not economically viable in any way. So, who's going to research? Who's going to help this person? So, the person, they can help themselves, right? That's the option. Or raise money and find a group of people that are willing to help research and do this by themselves. But it's basically going to have to be some non-for-profit to some place that's funded primarily by some outside source and not by the, any economic incentive. And uh, that's what we were trying to, that's what we were trying to help. It's like, look, in these cases where the system is not going to help you, by learning and utilizing this technology, you can be your own hope. You can learn to use this technology just like people learn to use computers, just like people learn to do computer programming at home or electronics at home or any of the number of other things that they learn to do at home. You can learn to do molecular biology and genetic engineering, and uh, you can actually contribute. I think it's really possible. Let me tell you, if you saw our lab, you know, the lab that we set up, and, like, the sophistication of experiments we can do here, all of the experiments that big companies are doing when you're talking about drug development, you know, ELISA's, uh looking at, you know, uh, RNA and the cells, human cells or animal cells, right? We're able to do experiments on animals and extract the RNA, measure the levels of the gene expression of the different proteins that we're trying to make. us to detect the levels of proteins in the animal. Like, this stuff isn't crazy. It's not complicated. It doesn't require much sophisticated equipment. You could buy the equipment on eBay for, you know, less than $5,000. It just requires knowledge and practice. Josiah Zayner, CEO and founder of The Odin. Josiah, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It was uh, great to be able to shout. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.